0: Today on the podcast, we're talking about the Gospel and Sexuality, Part 2. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome
1: back, or welcome to the Multiply Podcast. My name is Jared. My name is David. Good to be back, Dave. Good part to be two. back. Part 2 of the Gospel and Sexuality. So if you're back for more, then that means you endured Jared's inappropriate comments and remarks in the first episode or he edited them all out after we uh, yeah. recorded i'm not I sure did a which. lot of
0: a lot of editing i bet yep. you did yeah bet you did i had to mm-hmm. you
1: said a lot of crazy
0: stuff that i had to go back and fix <laughs> so which isn't that uncommon if you guys didn't know i edit the podcast every week so if david sounds smart you can give me the credit for that mm.
1: i think my mom would like to differ <laughs> she says all my smartness comes from her yeah, that's that's probably true. She is true. the Korean, so <laughs> <laughs> it's good
0: to be back. We're excited to uh, to jump back into this topic. Um, we uh, we started part one, so if you've not listened to part one, I would really suggest it because all that we talk about today is going to be framed in that conversation. And uh, so it's really helpful. It may not make as much sense if you don't listen to that. But um, just a quick recap: we we're, we're really talking about the gospel and sexuality, and how do we when we're discipling someone or discipling our own hearts uh, handle the issue of sex or sexuality. And so last episode, we laid out the concept that the the real issue in sex and sexuality is uh, not the behavior, first and foremost, but it's actually the worship behind the behavior. So in every human heart, we're worshiping idols, things that we want to give us identity, value, and worth. And we laid out four main idols that every person tends to worship. And um, and we talked about how when we're dealing with sex and sexual sin, and you're discipling somebody, how it's helpful not to just focus on the behavior, but to actually help them discover what is the heart idol that they're really worshiping. And if they discover that, there can be freedom in that, because you understand what, what is really pulling you, what's really tempting you. And uh, so today we want to continue the conversation and uh, talk a little bit about... Um, The next two points, we kind of left people a little bit uh, hanging out there, right, without Mm -hmm. any sort of solution.
1: Yeah, we just, I think, created some tension around identifying the root issues beneath our struggles, not just with sexuality, but, you know, in all areas of life. And so um, today I think we want to talk a little bit about... um, your second and third point again this is from a talk that you've given in a couple different environments and uh so the first point was the idea that sex isn't uh, about sex sex is never about sex, sex Sex is never about sex and then today uh what's your what's your next thought for so us? the next
0: the, the second point is this we all need healing so sex is never about sex and the next part is we all need healing and um I'm interested to hear about your experience, because both of us have grown up in the church our whole life. You are now a senior pastor of a church. Mm -hmm. Um, Up until nine months ago, I served for 10 years as a pastor in a local church. And so one of the things that I have seen, and I want to hear from you about your experience is there tends to be this distancing when we talk about sexual sin from... Uh, the, from preachers or people that are on stage or people that are talking about it, uh, or just a lot of Christians in general, there tends to be a distancing between different types of sexual sin. Yeah. Right. Or a, a leveling out of sexual sin, and these things are worse. These things are not as bad. And I'm not in that category. I'm in this one. And um, so uh, have you seen that? And how do you think that affects the overall conversation when we talk about sex and sexuality?
1: I have seen that, and, um, you know, I think that, uh, I said this in the last episode, people like to people like to judge people who sin differently than them, and this is uh, definitely true in the area of sexuality, and um, so I think that depending on where we are at as a society and where the conversation and culture is taking place, there are certain topics related to sexuality that are hot topics, that are, um, you know... Um, um, sort of easy targets, I guess, for a preacher to, to shoot away at. And then, uh, and the, the problem with that, although I'm not saying we should go silent on issues, uh, but the problem with just picking one or two big issues, one, one or two topics, uh, expressions of sexuality that maybe are not prominently an issue within a local church, is that we sort of give the audience a way out of the issue of the need for um, growth and health sanctification and healing in the area of sexuality. So, you know, if a pastor just is going to go on uh, and repeatedly address uh, maybe the issue of uh, gay marriage or, you know, homosexuality, um, and they're going to say, like, this is what the Bible says, and this is what I believe, and they just kind of always go after that topic, but then don't address the issue that there are a lot of people in the room who are heterosexuals who are even married and committed to their spouse who ha- need healing in this area, that they, um, that there is a root sin issue beneath their even their expression of sexuality within a committed marriage. And so I do think it allows people to sort of distance themselves from others and to say uh, that's them and this is us. Um, I think some people might even look down their nose at people who struggle with other things, who might be scared of, might be confused by, might be just misinformed about. Um, A lack of compassion, a lack of genuine care, just a desire to categorize and and characterize people who struggle with certain uh, sins, and no real desire to understand their story, no real desire to draw near, to be incarnational, and no real effort to um, get to the root issue and to actually identify with that person as saying, I, I share some root issues that you share. We may have different expressions. The behavior may look different, but at the heart level, the worship issue is this, is the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's important. It's important. The idea that we're all broken, all of our sexuality is broken, is essential, I think, in having these conversations. Because if you step onto a stage or platform, or you just are having a conversation, and the assumption is, I'm not broken, but you are, Mm. you're broken versus we're broken, it totally changes the dynamic. And I think we're suffering the consequences of a church who, for many years, had the conversation framed in such a way that it it was, you're broken versus we're broken. And and so when a senior pastor gets up there, or a preacher, and, and they're talking about sexuality, and the first thing that they're saying is this is an us problem, myself included. That totally changes the dynamic. Like how how that de escalates everybody, how that puts everybody in the same playing field. It doesn't it doesn't um, push people against each other, pit people against each other. But it it just says we're all in this together. That totally is a different feel than someone coming up and saying. You're broken in your sexuality if you feel this way, or if
1: you struggle with this, or if you're participating. If in you're this. different than me, right? And I think what you're what you're saying is is that this this belief that there's a brokenness in all of us, that none of us are born with a desire that doesn't need some redeeming and rescuing and repurposing by Jesus, it's not just to make people feel comfortable or to make people feel accepted. It's not just to create a psychological effect in the room. It's a theological standpoint, right? Yeah. And so one of the things I've really thought a lot about recently when it comes to some of the more complex, hot-button issues that the church tries to speak to, I I find—I like Carl Lentz's approach. I know he got some flack for this, and not everybody would agree with this, but he talked about, you know, we're not, as a church, as interested in— um, making statements as we are in having conversations and I know some people would say well you know that's a that's a um, relinquishing of a role that you're supposed to have and maybe there's some fairness in that critique but what i think is heart is is i, I want to know the people that i'm that i'm talking about a really significant part of their life i don't want to just blanket statement um uh, a whole group of people who i don't even know their names i don't know their stories i don't know their struggles i don't know their pain points and so i i really um love that idea of starting with beneath this complicated, nuanced, um, emotionally charged conversation around sexuality. What are some of the building blocks of a Christian worldview that inform this conversation? And if, if we're not on the same page with those building blocks, then our conversation is never really going to be as fruitful as it could be. It's sort of like trying to do advanced algebra with somebody who does addition completely differently than you do, right? It's just totally different starting point. So let me just mention a couple. Um, I I think that one of the worldviews that Christians hold is that there is a righteous creator to whom we are accountable with how we bear his image and how we lead our lives. Now, that's a pretty big statement to make. And if you don't agree with that or believe that to be true, then there's almost no foundation for which to have some of these more nuanced, complicated conversations revolving around sexuality. So you, you kind of have to get down to the basics and say, here's what the Christian worldview says. There's a righteous creator to whom we are accountable. We bear his image and we're responsible to bear his image in a way that worships and glorifies and honors him. Agree or disagree, or, you know, let's have a conversation about that. Yeah, And then that becomes a foundation building block for a, a for to step up into more conversations. Other other building block examples might be that God has a plan for human flourishing and for this uh, for His creation. Uh, another one is the one that you've already mentioned: the idea that we're broken because of sin. There is a there's a perversity in our nature that leads us to to brokenness and to broken expressions of all of our desires, including sexuality. And there's more there's more that I could list. But the point being that uh, the helpful thing about this conversation is we're taking it from uh, I think that's wrong. I think you shouldn't do that. To here's what the scriptures say about our world and how we view it. Yeah,
0: that's so true. And one of the helpful, the helpful ways I think to have that conversation, to frame that conversation when it comes to sexuality, is to get on the common ground that we all have a sexual ethic, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all have a idea of what is appropriate and what is inappropriate, what is allowed and what is um, not allowed. And so the, the grounding to say, OK, we, you and I may disagree on what is appropriate and what's inappropriate, but can we both agree that that we do have a sexual ethic? Like we do both believe there is boundaries and what should be allowed. And, and almost nobody believes that that adults should be able to take advantage sexually of children. Right, so we we agree that there's an ethic. Now the question is, how do we determine the ethic? And that's important, right, to establish. We both agree there's a sexual ethic, but what what helps a Christian so much in the next conversation is to say, and I believe that my sexuality is just as broken as every other human being's. So we're actually, in my worldview, we're actually on the same page. That we may struggle with different manifestations of sexual sin, but both of our sexualities are 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 broken and and here's how we know that's true because there may be some listeners my guess is they're going like yeah but I'm a heterosex I'm in a heterosexual committed marriage um relation married relationship so how how are you going to say that my sexuality is broken and here's what I would say is how we define a broken or distorted sexuality or a sinful sexuality is not based on certain behaviors like Uh, do you practice homosexuality? Do you practice pornography? Do you practice adultery? Although those matter, but what really the definition of sin in sexuality is, are you using sex to find value and worth or identity in something outside of Christ? So are you using what God created to be a benefit for you to find your identity, your worth and value? Yeah. If you are, and i would argue that all of us do at time to time then that means you can be a married heterosexual man and still be have a broken and sinful sexuality
1: yeah what what would that so unpack that for us a little bit i don't disagree with you but um what what could that look like cuz there is you know there is this mentality that like once you're married and committed to somebody like you're and as long as you're not you know committing adultery that everything is you know, God-honoring sexuality. And what you're saying is that even within a faithful marriage, there can be ways in which people are leveraging sexuality for identity in ways that only Christ is supposed to provide for them. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I'll use my own my own life as an example because this is when it really became— I was reading about this stuff, and I was really starting to understand the, the role of the gospel and the idolatry in my life— and I remember in my—anyone um, who's been married for any sort of period of time, you know, when you first get married, you have a certain expectation. And I, I don't want to, you know, crust the expectations of uh, the engaged couples out there or the young men that are hoping to get married. But when I, w- when I was getting ready to get married, I got married at 20, my idea was like, sex whenever you want it. It's going to be amazing. I'll never struggle again, <laughs> right? This is— that this is why marriage exists and when you're married for a certain period of time you realize like that's that's not the case oh young jared <laughs> young crazy jared <laughs> you moron um, but stuff happens in life like even in the most healthy committed uh, selfless relationships stuff happens right people yeah. get sick there's traumatic events in life and i remember there being moments in my in, in our my marriage where even do not the fault of my wife or myself but just life events there was lack of intimacy and i remember f- in the moments where there was a lot of intimacy i felt i felt different like i felt more like i had more worth and value and the moments where there was less intimacy or the intimacy wasn't as in my opinion quality or great Uh, I felt like less of a person, like less of a man. I felt like I had less worth and value. And what actually ended up happening is I I, I would become angry and frustrated at my wife and my spouse. I thought like, oh, it's her fault. And this was all happening subconsciously. I didn't know what was taking place in my heart. But as I started to look back and digest it, here's what I realized. I was worshiping the idol of approval. And I had attached approval to my sex life with my wife, a heterosexual committed marriage relationship, and so when it was going great, I felt like I had more value and worth. I felt like she was approving of me. It it filled that idolatry, and I felt great. And when it didn't wasn't wasn't there or it lacked, all of a sudden I felt like less of a man. And because I felt that way, my I I naturally pointed my anger towards either her or the situation that was preventing it. So I was using, I was leveraging our sexual relationship, which is supposed to be selfless, it's supposed to be me giving to her, right? And her giving to me. I was leveraging it to actually worship the idol of my heart, of which is approval. And so I remember in that moment realizing, oh my goodness, like I'm just as broken as I ever have been, ever was before I got married. And I'm just as broken as every other human being. Why? I'm taking what God designed to be a benefit in marriage and i'm leveraging
1: it to worship something other than jesus yeah it's really a um misuse of a gift right i mean sex is a gift sexuality is a gift that god has blessed us with and it's a way in which um and and that's one thing that has to be said i guess in this conversation just right off the bat because some churches you you might uh you might get this sense or some homes you grow up in you might get the sense that sex is inherently evil and wrong and something that we should be ashamed of. And, and there's even been, you know, throughout history, um, churches and maybe streams of Christianity w- which would describe uh, or attribute to sex only the value of procreation. That's It's literally just so that we can uh, have children as opposed to recreation and enjoyment. And um, uh, I, so I think, but when we take the gift that God has given us and given us some parameters um, for our good... You know, for human flourishing, and even for the goodness of, even for the good of our own heart, um, you know the damage that comes out of misappropriation of that gift. Obviously, is well documented in each of our lives and in the world today, and so it's a powerful gift that God has given us. And ultimately, every gift God gives us is meant to point us back to Him the giver of the gift to make us grateful worshipping people but even the expression and use of that gift in and of itself can be worshipful uh, to God because in it we're bearing his image well in our expression of fully committed um, um, love to our spouse
0: yeah so I I think that's so true and it's important to keep this in mind because it helps us remind ourselves that we're all broken like it doesn't matter so someone who is engaging in you know a teenager who's who's uh, watching pornography on a regular basis because they're fantasizing about having the approval of a woman in their life is different, but it's also not different than me l- using my sexual relationship with my wife in a committed relationship to yeah. gain and
1: worship that idol of approval. In fact, yours is maybe more dangerous in the sense that you're in a context that it's easier to see it as, or it's, it's harder to see it as a issue of idolatry yeah that's true it's it's like one if if you're in a if you're if you grew up in a traditional christian environment where you're taught certain things about sexuality of course some people maybe are listening going i don't understand that why would why would looking at pornography be a sin like but if you grew up in and you believe and adhere to sort of traditional christian teaching on the use of sexuality then um certainly no teenage boy who grew up in church all the time hearing these things was would watch pornography and and not on some level think or admit like this is not good this is not the right thing that i should be doing how so there's sort of this sense of like yeah this is clearly sinful behavior but the example you gave out of your own life it would have been very easy for you to miss that and the truth is is you could have gone the entirety of your life leveraging sex and sexuality in your marriage uh to continue to feed that idol of approval and only by the grace of god did you are you even alert and aware to it? And and by His grace, I'm sure you're continuing to um, bring it into, uh, uh, bring it in, bring it under the lordship of Christ.
0: Yeah. And here's what's really crazy, right? If you so, if you don't think this applies to you, what's really crazy is, especially with a couple that knows each other, you will actually start to leverage your spouse's idol in order to get your idol. So let's say you know your spouse's idol is security the temptation is to actually leverage security in order to get their approval hmm. or you'll leverage their approval. So let's use sex as an example. Like let's say you want it you want sex, you don't get it, you can then start you start to then leverage your approval of that person, right? So now I'm distant from you. I'm not gonna I'm gonna be mean to you. I'm gonna be nasty to you. And what's what's oftentimes happening is I'm trying to leverage their idol so that they'll come back and they'll go, No, okay, I fine, I want that. And then so they'll they'll give me the idol that I want And it's this kind of twisted subconscious game that happens that we're not even aware of. And it's all happening within a quote-unquote normal committed committed sexual relationship.
1: Yeah. And just to broaden that topic for a second, then we should move to your last thought on this conversation. That's true not just in this conversation on sexuality, but even in parenting, right? The idea that as a parent... Um, maybe I want the approval of other parents. I want to look like a good parent. So I, my family goes over to your family's house for dinner, and I want my kids to be, behave because I want you to think that I have good control over my kids. Yeah. And so in order to get them to behave before we walk into the door uh, or before we walk in your house, I might say something like, uh, listen, if you, if you want this later, you need to behave now. And I'm leveraging their desire for something, whether it's comfort, whether it's security, whether it's approval. And so it's true in your context, but I just wanted to, for our listeners, say it's true in your workplace, it's true in your marriage, it's true in your parenting, it's true in all of your interactions where you're utilizing and leveraging other people's unhealthiness to get what is to satisfy unhealthiness in you. Yeah. So last thing is, uh, we've so far we've talked about that sex is never about sex. Yep. Everyone needs healing. Yep. And what's the last one? The
0: last one is Jesus makes sex right. So this is really the conclusion of how do we um, how do we handle this in a healthy way. And the idea behind this is to say, well, what is the solution to all this, right? If we're all messed up, we're all jacked up, that's kind of depressing. What's actually the solution? Well, what, what we know from the problem is the problem is a lack of belief in our gospel identity. And this is true of Israel in the Old Testament. The moments when they forgot their identity in Yahweh, they forgot who they were as the people of God, it affected everything in their life and they started to worship other idols. The same is true for us. When we forget our identity in Christ, when we forget what we have as the gospel revealed that to us, we start to look to other things. So if that's our main problem, the solution is actually simple, right? It's a re belief, a refocus on the gospel, a re belief in who we are in our identity. So if our identity is secure in Jesus, then the temptation to look to other things or other places, all of a sudden, lessens by a huge amount. And this could this is understood in in your world of food, Dave. You know, um, <laughs> my my world of food. Yeah, I mean we all know. I'm all the know. only one that enjoys food. If I if I put down, what's your
1: favorite type of steak?
0: Um. Mm.
1: Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> just just in
0: general, don't probably a bone and ribeye. Okay. so I put a bone and ribeye down in front of you. Don't you tease me? <laughs> don't you do that? And then I put and then I put next to you uh, cat food, right? Is in any way that cat food tempting? No, no, because you're're you're, you're even fair though. You're completely satisfied. <laughs> now, if I take that bone and ribeye away, and, I, and you get nothing for a week straight, seven days or whatever, all of a sudden, like, there's going <laughs> to s- reach a certain point where that cat food, di- with gravy, I'm giving you the gravy in there, becomes a little more tempting.
1: Now we all know you have a cat. Because I had true. no clue there was gravy that goes on cat food. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can get it with gravy. Yeah, I would be eating it. I'd eat the plate. I'd probably eat my hand after <laughs> a week. So
0: the idea, but the idea is the same thing with our gospel identity. Yeah. Like, when we're starved of the truth of who we are in Christ then we ta- we tend to look and take cheapened versions of that to find our identity. But when that truth has really solidified us and it's right in front of us and we know it, all this, that the, the temptation of that other stuff is gone because yeah. it's
1: like, what is that? So can we get more specific with these four idols? Yeah. Um, let's talk about each of them one at a time, and and what is a gospel truth that someone could be preaching to their hearts, and and you want to um you you want to you need to rehearse this daily, right? Yeah. Um, it needs to become part of a spiritual discipline, part of a rhythm of your life. You need to invite other people to speak these gospel promises into your life. Uh, you need to look th- um, through Scripture and find examples of these truths. But um, do you have something for each of the four? Yeah. So this is how Jesus heals our idols. Okay. If your idol is approval,
0: we remind ourselves of the gospel. And what we, what we know is that we don't need approval because we have it from the one who knows us best and has given everything for us. So you don't need approval from a, a person because the creator of the universe who knows every detail of your heart, including your brokenness, has given everything he had up for you. I mean, it's the ultimate approval, mm-hmm. right? So we remind our hearts of that. If your idol is power, you can be reminded that we don't need power because the one who has it all gave it all up for our sake. So so Jesus who has all power and authority in the world willingly sacrificed it for us and now sits on the throne reigning over all. So he has ultimate power. So our, our allusion to some sort of Uh, temporary or momentary power, we can give that up. We don't need it, right? He has it. Um, if, If your idol is security or control, we don't need security because in Christ, we have the ultimate security that's not just in this life, but actually lasts for all of eternity. So any momentary security we could feel, we can remind our hearts that in Jesus, he secured us for all of eternity. So we can lay that down. And if your idol is comfort, you can remind ourselves that we don't need comfort because our King Jesus gave up ultimate comfort in order to secure our ultimate comfort so that he suffered, and we may suffer, but one day he suffered so that we never will have to again. Yeah, And that reminder of us is super helpful.
1: In our last episode, you referenced the book You Can Change by Tim Chester, and in it he talks about the four Gs. I think we've talked about it in a previous podcast, podcast episode, but uh, I think it aligns aligns very well with what you're saying. He talks about how God is great, glorious, good, and gracious, and because God is great, which means that he's sovereign, we don't have to be in control. Like if we really trust that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that he's overall, that he's working out his plans and his purposes and he's redeeming, then we can take our hands off things and not need to be in control. Because God is glorious and there's none like him, we don't have to fear others. It's, you know, the fear of God is uh, the only fear that we need, that reverence and that awe. Because God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere for comfort and for pleasure. And uh, because God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. We're accepted by God, as you said, based on the unchanging, unmerited performance of another. And as long as, we, and that's why believing the gospel, um, the grace that's found in the gospel is so important. Because as long as you're standing before God is based on your ongoing performance, um, there's no way I, I, I can't. I can't imagine if I believe that to be true, and I actually did for, for a lot of my life and still struggle with it, I can't imagine why I would do anything good for selfless reason. Yeah, Everything good I would do would be to make my resume more impressive. And we need to lay our resumes down, pick up Christ, and in there find the approval and acceptance that our hearts desire. Yeah. So here's why this matters
0: in, in the area of sexuality. If you, if you begin to understand your idols and preach the gospel to your heart, what happens is... Uh, our identity is secure, and now we can understand sex, and sex can actually take its proper place in our lives. It becomes a, an act of selflessness, a, a life-giving relationship, giving building act versus something we're using to gain to gain identity, value, and worth. And what's interesting about and I'll close with this thought, and then we can we can end. But what's interesting about the Christian. Uh, view of sexuality is that in many ways, in Christianity, sex is more important than the world, right? It's more important than the world because uh, in the world, um, sex is not exclusive to a monogamous relationship. You can have, but in Christianity, it says, no, this is so valuable and it's so important that it's actually worth waiting and sharing in the context of a covenant with one person. Right? So it's more important because it's about giving your life to one person and selflessly sharing with that person. But then in other ways, self is less, sex is less important than the world in Christianity because it's not something that gives us identity. Mm. right? It's not something that gives us our value and worth. It's something that was given to us to be enjoyed in a certain context, but it doesn't define who we
1: are or our value and worth. So it has great value, but it's not our source of value. Yeah. Wow, that's good, man, and I think it's worth saying, too, that wherever our listeners are at in their journey and in their conversation, this conversation in their struggles, that uh, we're so grateful that there's a God who forgives, there's a God who redeems, there's a God who gives new beginnings and new starts to, to us wherever we've been and whatever we've done, and um, that uh, He's He's faithfully at work in all of us, you know, changing us and shaping us and conforming us into the image of His Son. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, let's get serious for a minute. Um, let's talk about David's eats.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I gotta say, in these two episodes, it's it's felt like a drastic left hand turn. When we get to the end of, <laughs> we get to so end anyway. of these two episodes. For some reason, this has felt like really like a real add on that doesn't really belong. Yeah, much, but let's do it because the the public demands they
0: demand it. I mean, I should I, maybe we should theme out David's eats. We're talking about you know sex like taco talk, talk over strawberries i always i don't know but no my uh now it's more awkward <laughs> my question for you is this I, I i was interested in hearing about this are you a fan of nachos
1: oh i love nachos
0: okay it's, before you say anything else okay here's the question describe to us your perfect plate of nachos what's on
1: there how is it arranged what does that look like oh baby well, I mean, the perfect plate of nachos. There's there's cheese on every chip. That's right. so hard to do, right? Yeah. My wife she she does the best she can. She she'll do a layer of chips and cheese, and another layer of chips. But so I'm definitely um, I like the chips to be really as thick and crunchy as possible. Like yep. I don't like them getting wet and soggy. I I like um, really any sort of cheese. I'm pretty. I, I guess I'm not too picky with cheese on the nachos. Any sort of shredded Mexican cheese or um, is fine. Do you uh, like the Do you like the poured over like nacho queso? cheese sauce or queso? If if there's enough shredded cheese melted, I don't need the queso. Okay, all right. Um, I love a lot of toppings. I really do. Um, I, my, some of my favorites are I love cilantro. I, I don't know. My wife hates cilantro. I love it. I know it's a very divisive, um, very selfish herb. of you to put that on there. Well, we do separate orders. Oh, okay. okay, yeah. Yeah, we're not on your budget, Jared. (laughs) Um, So we do, uh, I I love cilantro. Actually, when it comes to Mexican food, I love things that are green. So I love cilantro. I love uh, guacamole. I love salsa verde. I love limes. I got to have a lime with Mexican food. You put some black beans on there? I I could have black beans. It's not like my favorite, but I like black beans. And then as far as meat, I think pulled pork actually um, Mm. is probably one of my favorite things. I could do chicken. I can do beef. But I really love pulled pork, and then um, the traditional stuff: lettuce, tomatoes, onions. I'll do olives, pickled jalapenos. Throw a little sour cream on there. Um, I don't have to have it, but I I, I don't mind it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not like that's not my favorite thing in the world. I would take guacamole over sour cream. Well, this is this is you can have whatever you want. So let's put them both on there. <laughs> Why not? But nachos is like a definitely um, one of those things that. Um, it just makes me so happy. It's the <laughs> textures. It's the flavors. It's the spice. I I like it all. In fact, my mouth is watering right now because oh, it's approaching so lunchtime. <laughs> so hungry. But it's also terrible for you. It that's is, but terrible. that's all right. Hey, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to the Multiply Podcast. We'll see you guys next
1: time.